my anxiety always is when you get too many people in a company you start creating problems and you start losing focus because you have so much new energy you are growing fast and you can say let me solve every single problem so i wanted to give a signal to the team saying we need to always prioritize and prioritization is hard prioritization is painful and hence the word brutal This is Equivalent to Magic, a show about the tech wizards behind the most influential companies and platforms. I'm Quentin Clark. And I'm Steve Harrod. Together we go deep with tech execs, product developers, and engineers about how they dream, design, and build their way to scale. This week's episode is all about magic pockets, nickels, cupcakes, and, as you just heard, brutal prioritization. Akhil Gupta joins us to talk about building the infrastructure that made Dropbox possible. It involves some creative code names and philosophies. Akhil's the general manager and VP of enterprise at Dropbox. Before that, he was VP of engineering and head of infrastructure, running a 500-person team that helped create the technical foundation for the Dropbox that we all know and love today. Quentin, I'm guessing you probably know a little something about this company, right? I do. I was CTO there for a few years. I left about a year ago to join General Catalyst and start a venture career, mostly because I was jealous of what you were doing, Steve, so I had to join you. (laughs) Glad you did. Dropbox has been one of those storied rocket ship companies. They're at tens of millions of paying users and hundreds of millions of registered users. They really forged this new path for enterprise software, that freemium grassroots adoption model. People love Dropbox for their personal stuff, and then they reached out for it at work to solve similar needs. Then that translated into work use, and that translated into work subscriptions, and that built a huge business. But that model comes with an interesting challenge. A lot, and I mean a lot, of free use at the top of the funnel. That's a massive scale, and that's where our story with the kill starts. When I got to Dropbox, one of the first things I learned about was this project he led called Magic Pocket. Magic Pocket was the reason Dropbox was able to scale reliably from 2,000 users in 2008 to hundreds of millions of registered users today. Back in 2012, when Akhil first joined the company from Google, there were 30 engineers. Dropbox had emerged as a leading cloud storage provider, but it faced a clear choice. Should it build its own storage or rely on the public cloud? And it was very clear the trajectory that a company was at. Storage is going to be a big, big part of our expenditure. So it made sense for us to start exploring and investing in our own stack, which was customized for our own users, the workloads they have. And that was the genesis of this project called Magic Pocket. The team decided to pursue a proprietary storage system, migrating from Amazon Web Services to build a new kind of cloud. Dropbox needed to build a block storage system that could differentiate between older files, those that aren't accessed as much, and newer ones, which are constantly in use. So we actually store break a, break a file into four megabyte blocks and store those blocks instead. That gave us a lot of efficiency because suddenly you were not storing a new copy of file when you change a single letter. Then the second thing they said, okay, instead of just doing replication, can we do things like erasure coding? So erasure encoding is a technique which allows you to take um, 10 files and split them into, say, 20 blocks. And then you are able to recover any of those 10 files from those 20 blocks if you lose one of those blocks. And that is more efficient in terms of storage efficiency. That system had to be highly reliable, durable, and most importantly, cost-effective. But Akil didn't talk to his engineers about cost. He just wanted them to build scale. The reason was, I was very afraid that if engineers start getting stressed about margins or cost, 
they will start making design decisions or start cutting the corners which will impact reliability and durability so we set up a structure where my team was told your job is to build a reliable and durable system when you're designing it customize it for the workload and we shielded them away from any kind of financial information or margins just to elevate that pressure so the financial pressure was off the engineers but it was certainly still on akil yes it was and on the whole company too When I arrived at Dropbox, we were on the eve of the IPO, which is a good place to start the interview. Obviously, being public was a big deal to the company, but in some ways, important to the industry too. Can a company create the right margins when it needs to build some of its own infrastructure? We spoke with Akil about all the hard decisions he made at Dropbox as they built their own infrastructure and what that meant for brutal prioritization among his engineering teams. Hey, Quinn, don't forget about the nickels and cupcakes too. We'll get to those. First, how Magic Pocket was built. And it's clear, though, Akil, one of the goals of this project of Magic Pocket and one of the reasons uh, that Dropbox was successful in its IPO, etc., was was because cost was a major goal of this project. But you uh, were really running this project a little bit obfuscating that specific part of the goal from the team building the work. Just just tell us a little bit more, how do you do that? Like, how do you manage a team where one of the major sort of goals is not front and center? So you start with, at least I started with just building a team first. So you want to build a set of engineers, which is a good mixture of uh, young, talented engineers, as well as senior engineers who have seen things at scale. So we were lucky enough to hire engineers who have worked at companies like Facebook, Google, who have seen scale, who have seen failure at scale and know how to prevent it. But then we also got some really, really talented engineers from colleges like MIT, CMU, who had these new ideas, who almost believed they could do anything. So that was the first part. Then the mandate given to them was, we need to build one of the best storage systems in the world. The baseline is the public cloud. You have to be as reliable, more durable, and you have to tell us how you can do efficiently. So we came up with a metric, which was uh, an overhead, replication overhead. And if you play it out, you can say, hey, the simple way of building a storage system is you copy every block three times. So the application overhead is three. So you said, can you optimize the replication overhead from three to two or maybe 1.5? And that became the driving factor. And that was what they were optimizing for. What we did was we wanted to make sure that they don't get into, oh, is the hard drive going to cost five cents? Should I reduce my hard drives? Or is the CPU going to be expensive? Because when you look at the cost, Hard drives are the biggest uh, factor of the cost, but then you start getting into network devices. You have to build a global network. You have to build data centers. And that financial statements can cause people to worry about the wrong things. Uh, Some senior leaders and me were more focused on, okay, if they do all these things, if the design they come up with and they achieve a certain replication overhead, our cost will be X times cheaper than the public cloud. And if we saw that was not trending the right way, we'd go back to the team and say, hey, you know, can you do more in terms of replication overhead? The good news was we never had to do that because they were motivated to prove that we can do a system that is more efficient than anything else in the world. Let's uh, let's follow up on this a little bit more. There's so many companies that start in the public cloud and then uh, particularly if they have a dedicated type of application, you know, they, they, they can do things more efficiently. But I'd love to just go back to your thinking there and, and talk about, you know, what what was the upfront cost versus the ongoing costs? How much did you have to change the product or the engineering? Um, some of the other unexpected consequences there, but so many companies are going through this. I'd love to hear what worked well and what didn't. So 
I have a, a test of three questions that I always encourage teams. As you said, you're right. A lot of companies do at least look at this every year or so. There'll be someone coming to me and saying, hey, we, we spend a lot of money in the public cloud. Should we actually build something on our own? And I give them these three questions to think about. Number one is, do you believe uh, the the benefits you will get from investing in infrastructure is valuable for your company? Maybe for your company, the margins is not an issue. Maybe for your company at that stage, money is not an issue. And that then spending time trying to optimize infrastructure is not a right idea. For us, it was an obvious one. Second one I asked them is, are you convinced that your workload is unique enough to be able to customize and operate infrastructure at scale? I certainly would not recommend anyone, even if you have a very specific workload, but your scale is a, a terabyte of storage to build your own infrastructure. doesn't mean because the efficiencies you get are only at scale. For us, the scale was obvious. We are one of the top 10 cloud companies. So we knew that we will be able to optimize the infrastructure. And the last thing is talent. You have to be able to recruit the right amount of talent. Infrastructure is not easy to build. It's something you need really experienced engineers. And then you have to be committed to hiring the talent. So that was the first three things that we did. And for us, everything was a yes. Yes, we think that this is valuable for us as a company. We knew we had the scale and the workload that we could differentiate our infrastructure. And then we had the talent. Then we started thinking about, okay, once we have that, how do we actually start implementing and managing cost? And we knew initially during the development phase, the Magic Pocket development was broken into three phases. One was where we were just building the software. So we had not invested in hardware, but that's where most of the CapEx goes in. But we had a small team of 10 people just building the software, building prototypes, designing it, and making sure the design actually will scale. And the second stage was about scaling it up. Once we were certain that the design is solid, we started investing in the network, in the data centers, in the machines. And while we were doing it, we were paying twice the money in some sense because we were still on the public cloud. But we were rapidly expanding. And that was where we wanted to make sure we do it as fast as possible because every time you are delaying it, you are spending more money. And the last stage was migration where we had to spend, I mean, moving hundreds of petabytes of data takes a lot of time. So it take, took us like two or three months to just move data from the public cloud to our Intel centers. And that was again a race, like how quickly can you push bits through a network? The other thing that we did was during all this time, we were committed that there would be no change to the product and the user will not see any difference because they should not have get impacted whether we are using a public cloud or internal stuff. So we made sure that our product roadmaps, our user experience does not degrade or see any change while we're doing this. That's pretty cool. Change the engine while the car is driving. <laughs> hopefully, pretty hopefully much not so. crashing. Can you just go one more level deep on the, the migration piece? I find this kind of fascinating. Um, maybe, you know, were you moving account by account and then doing some period of time you were sending it both places and... And I guess related to that, was there a final day when you like turned off the <laughs> turned off the cloud and that was like your last thing that had been stored in the public cloud? What we did there was not actually move accounts by accounts because we want, we actually were storing blocks and blocks are not associated blocks. But we what we did was we built a system where we can copy data from public cloud to internal cloud. And as we are copying data, we can then point our users for, to either public cloud or our internal cloud, depending on what data they want. So the way it would work is every day we would move, say, two petabytes of data from public cloud to Magic Pocket. We would run verification. Everything is corrected. There's no bit flips. Uh, there's a lot of verification we had to do where every time we spend send something over the wire, 
We would check the hash, we'll check the data is not corrupted. So the user in some sense was shielded from any bug or any issue, issue we may see in Magic Pocket because what would happen is user will go to the Magic Pocket and imagine because of some issue we did not, we were not able to serve the data, the system will just automatically fail over to public cloud and that will just work as before. So one of the things that we wanted to make sure and is the biggest risk actually in infrastructure is what I call unknown unknowns. What are the bugs you do not think of? So we had this thing called dark launch where we committed almost a year back saying that once we have moved everything to Magic Pocket, once we have moved every user to Magic Pocket, we will continue to store and write data into the public cloud for three months. And even if you find a small bug, it doesn't matter how small the bug is, even if you find a single bug in those three months, the clock starts again. And we actually found a bug in our second month of the dark launch, we reset the clock. But we did that because for us, one bug was too many. Because if you find one bug, you don't know what five more bugs do you have in the system. The bug was actually very small. It did not actually cause any loss of data. But it could have caused loss of data if certain specific actions had happened. For example, a machine had failed at the same time that bug was triggered, we would have lost data. So that dark launch was extremely nervous time for our team because it was almost, oh, if something happens, you know, we restart the clock. But the fact that we had decided to do that a year in advance made sure the team was emotionally and was okay with it and saying, look, you know, this is the right thing because in the end, we cannot lose the data for our users. It's an amazing, it really is an amazing story. And it, and it ultimately did uh, lead back to Dropbox being able to be, you know, deliver the right kinds of contribution margins to allow it to IPO. Um, but let's, if, let's staying on the thread of, of Magic Pocket for just a minute, let's break down the levers how far down did you go, right? Because you you decided not to pour your own concrete and build your own data centers, right? Yeah. Um, so there is some layer which you determined you did not need to go all the way down to. So how did how did you break that down? Like, what are the kind of the layers where um, you engaged? And, you know, frankly, like, let's set the record straight. Dropbox did a ton of amazing innovation in infrastructure that maybe is not that well known. So uh, I think there were two phases of that. In the first phase, we did not want to build our own data centers. We rented space, and but we did want to invest in designing and building our own power and networking within the room because we knew that would be a big part. As you can imagine, in storage system, network actually becomes a bottleneck too. So you wanted to be able to move a lot of the amount of data from one machine to the machine if the machine fails. So we started from that. We said we'll design our power, we'll design the network, within the data center and the power and the cooling. So we did that. We did not start by designing our hardware. Uh, we partnered very closely with the vendors to say, okay, what do you have in terms of high density storage? And then we used that to build software on top of it. And from the bare metal, everything was designed by us. We wanted to design things like, okay, how do we actually detect when a hard drive is failing? How do we actually figure out when the machine is failing. So we had to build everything from the bare metal to the to the software stack. And every layer had to make sure that they are very simple. The APIs are simple, but they're doing a single job very well. So we did that. As we matured, after the launch of Magic Pocket, we actually then started working very closely with the hardware teams, uh, sorry, hardware companies who were building servers to co-design. So our team worked very closely with companies that build servers to say, okay, we need more density. Because one of the ways you can achieve more cost efficiency is actually by packing more hard drives in a single machine. 
at the very base of it that's what it is you need to be able to store as many hard drives you can put in a single server so we started with something like 40 drives and we eventually get got to 100 drives in a box and that requires a lot of hardware you know you get into thermals you get into where the machines will get overheated we did not have the expertise but we worked very closely with them My, our hardware team which is a very small team worked very closely with them and say hey we need this can we work with you to figure out how can we store more and more hard drives in a single box our initial thesis was that our bottleneck would be network we thought that we can pack as many hard drives as we can in a single box but at some point the network bandwidth will prevent us from storing more data but it turns out it was not network it was the amount of weight or our data center floor can support for a rack that prevented us from making it more dense i definitely did not anticipate that but it turns out we ran that limit because we could not make the rack more heavier otherwise the floor would collapse akil i remember when i first joined dropbox you you brought me on a tour of the data centers and uh and there was sitting there one of these you know i don't remember how many units high it was maybe six units high or eight units high which is just a chassis of hard drives and and being told what the weight was and being kind of astonished yeah, it's funny. I had a quick anecdote on the same thing. Back in the VMware days, uh, I went to a farm in New Zealand, and they actually had kind of this weird elevated floor. And they, they ended up buying VMware for server consolidation purely for weight, which I had never seen before. Um, can we go back to the, so the hard drives are such a big part, as you said, also network bandwidth. Um, you had something called Project Nickel. Can you talk us through that and, and how it worked and how you got the engineers behind it? Yeah, so um, this was something where at some point I felt confident that the engineers have made the right choice. We have taken everything we could have done in terms of preventing durability or reliability issues. And the system was actually doing well. And then I felt comfortable challenging the team uh, to even a higher goal. And the idea was, okay, so we have a system that's already reliable, that's already durable. It is also already more cost efficient than public cloud. But one of the things that we did and it was a conscious decision was we still treated all blocks the same way. So if you think of Dropbox, if you're a Dropbox user, a lot of your data is cold. Old files, old photos don't get access as much, whereas the things that you put in yesterday or a week before, you will tend to use them more. But our system treated every block the same. The replication overhead, the performance and the bandwidth was same no matter whether the block was never accessed or whether the block was being heavily accessed. So at that point, the next challenge I wanted to give the team was, okay, is there an opportunity for us to understand the access patterns to the, to the various blocks we have and further optimize our cost by leveraging the fact that certain blocks are not as accessed frequently as others? And then the the motivation uh, that I come up with names just to motivate people. I was like, okay, can we start a project nickel where the, where the idea actually would be to further reduce the overhead? Obviously, it's it's a reference to how much a storage can cost, and come up with an idea where we will be able to separate cold data into a different tier from hot data, and that became what internally was then called MPY, which is uh, a second tier storage that we build on, inside Magic Pocket which allows us to move cold data with a much lower overhead than hot data. And that gave, gave us another additional boost in terms of savings. Um, the timing was interesting because I wanted to make sure we do that only when the basic durability and reliability is done. Because I personally think if you give too many goals to engineers, you run a higher risk and infrastructure is one place where you don't want to take too much risk. But that project was also very successful where 
the team was able to come up with a different design, which was able to say, look, since you access it uh, not that frequently, your read performance will be a little bit less, but you gain your efficiencies because you're storing uh, things in a different way. So you, you spoke about risk and about making really specific choices about where to innovate. Um, and Dropbox today doesn't it doesn't run all everything on its own infrastructure. It's a it's a balance of things that you've put together and run within within your own data centers, and then it's also stuff that's continued to be used from public cloud vendors. How did you how do you think about navigating that line? So I'm a big big believer that innovation for the sake of innovation is useless. Uh, innovation has to serve a customer's need. So we were clear that. Storage for us is going to be very important from a cost point of view, but also reliability and durability. But at the same time, we knew as a company, it'll be foolish for us to say we'll do everything our own. There were certain aspects of our business where either our workload goes back to the three questions that I had. Our workload is not going to be different than the other company. Think of analytics. I mean, what are we going to do in analytics that no one else is doing? We will not have the talent, maybe, to innovate in those space. And we continue to use public cloud in those areas which we knew we did not have either the scale or the different workload. Or the the reality is the public cloud will out-innovate us because they have more resources and more talent. Uh, and we build our systems. The Another thing that we did was we came up with this notion of drop cloud where the idea was our product engineers should not worry whether they're using public cloud or our internal infrastructure. The interface to them should be the same. So spinning up something on the public cloud as a machine should be the same as getting a machine our own internal infrastructure. And the infrastructure team can then choose, hey, this system is no longer as good as what we have in public cloud, so we can just move things around. And that philosophy has worked well because we have been able to almost plug and play where if you find something interesting happening in public cloud, we can just use it. Our product engineers don't have to worry about, oh my God, this is a new system, I need to like figure it out. And even in storage, we do use public cloud because we, our data centers are not everywhere in the world. So if we need to meet a customer's need and support storing data in Japan or Germany, we use public cloud. But our systems above the storage don't know that. They just feel that using a single system, now whether that's Magic Pocket or public cloud, it's the same it's the same interface. So we can easily move customers from one system to another system without disrupting anything. Well, one of the other innovation areas that I think you've chosen to invest in was the Go programming language. Um, I'd be curious how you how you thought about that and, and why was that something that you wanted to really push forward and innovate on? Oh, uh, so when I joined Dropbox, we were a Python shop. Everything was in Python. Um, so I come from Google and we had extensive usage of Python, but we also knew that when it comes to highly performant systems or highly scalable systems, Python is not necessarily the best language because it uses a lot of memory, it doesn't have a good support for concurrency. So one of the things we were trying to figure out was, okay, if Python is not the right choice, which language do we invest in? Um, and this was not just because of Magic Pocket, we had other systems we were building as well, but we did need to figure out what do we start doing? And we had few options. One was Java, uh, one was uh, C or C++, or there was this new language, I think it was 1.2 had just come out when we adopted Go, a new language coming out from Google called Go. It was actually brand new. I don't think it was being used too much outside of Google. And coming from Google, I knew the design, the team, the, the design uh, sensibilities that Go language did. So I was actually excited about Go, but one of the things we wanted to make sure was there will be a thriving community 
and development of Go as we progress. Because once you invest in a language, it's not a one-year commitment, you are signing up for the next 20 years. So we spent a lot of time with the Google team. We knew the Go team and say, okay, tell us how about your plans are. Obviously it's Go 1.1, everything is not great, but what are the next few steps? And we came out very confident that Go is being designed for exactly the kind of systems that we are building. It's being designed by concurrency in mind. Uh, it allows you to be able to write multi-concurrent uh, systems very easily. So we chose Go, um, and that worked out well because Go has become a much more mainstream language in the last five, six years. We were the first company, I think, in the world which used Go at such massive scale, and it has also improved. So that has actually worked well in terms of performance and also ease of development. Akhil, You've done a lot in your career at Dropbox, um, and you're kind of famous for a couple of things there. One of them is this red T-shirt that you had made. What does that red T-shirt say? Uh, so that was my first swag I made for my team, and it says brutal prioritization. Uh, the intent of that was in 2012, the company was growing insanely. We were hiring, we were growing engineers by 200% year over year, and my anxiety always is when you get too many people in a company, you start creating problems and you start losing focus because you have so much new energy, you are growing fast and you can say, let me solve every single problem. So I wanted to give a signal to the team saying, we need to always prioritize and prioritization is hard. Prioritization is painful and hence the word brutal. If prioritization was easy, we would all do it. And I gave the t-shirts to all of them with an idea of saying, look, we, we are growing, we are doing very well. We'll have more engineers, larger teams, we'll scale ourselves, but we cannot lose focus. We still need to put, uh, what I often say is put more wood behind fewer arrows. Um, and I, I hope it helped because the teams did continue to focus on things that were important. Otherwise you, you run into risk of just spreading yourself too thin. Yeah, you never hear about soft and fluffy prioritization. <laughs> it's always pretty hard. So, um. <laughs> it was, it, it, it did, um, it was not cupcake-y. Cupcake is another value that we had in 2012. There were a few people who said, oh, this does not meet with our language. I was like, yeah, but prioritization is painful. It's There's nothing fun about That's it. That's right. Well, hey, um, on that note, maybe talk us through a little bit. You've, you've obviously had a, a great career and evolved and had more and more responsibility as you go forward. But talk about your own uh, general management philosophy. Um, how, how did your own role and your own ability to work with this group change as it got bigger and bigger and scaled? So I personally have learned a lot. I Looking back six years or eight years back now, I think I had no idea what I was doing. I was not as good a leader as I should have been. So when I look back, my philosophy has been the same where I personally look for uh, growth, like what can I learn? The reason I joined Dropbox was very simple. I wanted to see how technology is being used outside of the bubble of Google because Google has amazing set of toys, but they're only applicable within Google. So I wanted to see, okay, how does a company like Dropbox build their infrastructure? Uh, the second one is well, I want to make sure that we are, I'm, I'm having an impact. So for me personally, being able to look at what we have done and have I made impact to the customers, have I made them back to the business was very important. And that's again where Dropbox has been very well. Um, and the last one, which I, I really enjoy is working with smart people, where I derive pleasure the way I, I mean, I have two kids now, I have a seven-year-old and a five-year-old. The way I tell myself is I'm staying away from them. It better be because I'm with smart people, where it's fun to work with them. And that's again, Dropbox has been an amazing place where it has some of the smartest people to work for. 
So my management philosophy has over time changed uh, because earlier, and if, if you talk to people who have worked with me for a long time, I was very, very focused on results. Uh, I took pride in the fact that my teams were highly efficient and high performing. And what evolved over the time is my understanding that as you scale, as you learn larger organizations, the key, the key lever that you have to do that is actually people. So you have to invest in people, you have to grow them, you have to be connected with them, and you have to figure out a culture that thrives, that makes them thrive. So in the last, I would say, four years, I've tried to change my leadership into where I'm connecting with the people, I'm setting a direction. I think setting a direction is a very important thing, which is where you say, this is where we need to head. But then you set some culture, like brutal prioritization was my way of setting a culture that we value focus. Um, and that's how I try to do it. I still drive value from being highly effective and being responsible for results that matter. But my way of doing it has now shifted from more from technology to be just being able to, how can I help people do their best job in the environment they have? You spoke of culture uh, and how you try to set very intentional culture during that infrastructure uh, work around prioritization and, and really making hard trade-offs and being focused on the right sort of outcomes. But it was not the same across all of Dropbox. So uh, over the years, you actually saw infrastructure engineers working with full stack and front end engineers, people working with design. You know, and Dropbox, as as you mentioned before, has this value called cupcake, which is sort of about these like little surprises and little delights for for end users. Tell tell me how those cultures like. How do you get those into synchro mesh? How do you make it so that you can be both cupcake and still, you know, prioritize? Yeah, I think um, values to me are strengths, but they can also be weaknesses where if you overuse a value, it can e easily become um, a weakness. For example, the intention of Cupcake was we want to have these small nuggets of delightness coming into our user experience. The customers should feel Cupcake even they use our products. But if you take it to the extreme, it might become you become too nice to each other. You don't want to say, hey, this is the wrong idea because you don't want to make them feel less cupcakey. The way at least we have tried to do is there's a balance. You almost have to have compensating mechanisms. So yes, we want to be cupcakey, but we also want to have focus. And we also want to be able to move fast. The way at least we tried to do in infrastructure in the early days was we had these company values, which were about cupcakiness and, and things like aim higher, sweating the details, which actually works very well for infrastructure. We introduced our own values, which were called infrastructure values, where we said, look, we want to be able to, in addition to that, we want to have focus. We want to prioritize reliability. Uh, we came up with a mission where we said our job in the end is to support product, I was very clear that infrastructure is not why people are buying our product. They're buying our product because it is a simple and easy to use. But we have to make sure that the product is, is easy, is safe, because security is also important and reliable. Uh, and then the teams came up with their own set of values that they would say, okay, I want to make sure that we are focused. We want to do things which are impactful, but not spread ourselves too thin. And those does cause them tension, but in my opinion, those tensions are healthy. It is actually a healthy environment where the product engineering teams are pushing infrastructure teams to say, can you do this faster? And infrastructure teams say, look, if you do this, you're running the risk of causing an outage. Uh, so I personally don't think tensions are bad, but there has to be a balance. There has to be a balance, and that comes from the top where you say, okay, when do we actually start pushing more on reliability? When do we start pushing more on product? 
and it has worked well. It's still work in progress, but uh, I would say removing the tension is not the solution. Speaking of of getting things in balance, uh, Dropbox was one of the um, innovators in a go-to-market motion, which is really getting end users to adopt a product and then coming in on the back end and selling that product more widely you know, at the enterprise level, at the IT level. Is Dropbox a consumer or an enterprise product to kill? Ah, great question. Uh, I mean, we, we did write the playbook on that one. I think that playbook has not become standard, but we did, the right, we did write the, the playbook 10 years back. Um, I answer this question by saying we are a consumer company where our consumers happen to use this for work. Uh, I believe this division between consumer enterprise has blurred with the advent of SaaS. Uh, the old mental model where you thought of enterprise software as clunky, hard to use, needs five IT administrators to t- teach you how to use it, and consumers is like the iPhone where you can just take it out of the box and start using it, you don't need an instruction manual, has blurred. The users at work, the consumers at work, are also demanding the same experience, the same design, the same product experience in their work tools. And that's why you see a lot of tools coming out like Dropbox, Airtable, Slack, which have brought in the same design thing. So my answer is it's a consumer company, but our consumers use us for work. So we need to make them productive as well. And you're in the thick of this now. The role you have now at Dropbox is as a VP and GM basically over our enterprise business, over Dropbox's enterprise business. So how did you find your way to that role? And are you having to learn different things coming out of the engineering background? Yeah, so um, a bit of my background, I was always fascinated by the product side. Uh, even at Google, I was in ads, and ads is actually a much more complex product than Google search. Uh, one of the reasons I was attracted by Dropbox was uh, because the product was an amazing product. I could see it being used in so many different ways. So when I came here, I ran engineering. Uh, at some point, I wanted to get a deeper understanding of uh, how does technology, business, and product tie together. And the opportunity that came up was we have uh, a large business supporting large teams, typically in mid-market enterprise companies, which use our product. Uh, and they use our product in various workflows they have. And... In my current role, what was interesting was to be able to learn how does technology, product, and business tie together. Uh, It gave me an opportunity to talk to a lot of customers where they would talk about the problems. And given my background, given my technology background, I could quickly tell them, okay, this is the problems they have. This is what we can build from a technology front, but then get product and design together as well to say, okay, what can we do that again looks simple? But the underpinning of the technology could be as complex as we can go because one of the biggest assets we have in the company is the amazing talent we have in engineering. So it has been a great experience. I believe my background in engineering has actually allowed me to bring up innovative solutions because if a customer says, I need something like this, I'm able to say, oh, that actually might be very easy for us to do. But then product and design help us know, okay, what's the right solution? Uh, and it goes back to what I said earlier where I constantly find myself motivated by learning new things. At some point, I felt engineering is awesome, but I need to understand how customers think, how a company can provide value to customers, and this role gave me that opportunity. Um, Let's talk just for one more minute on enterprise versus consumer. And and you often hear companies talking about having DNA, like enterprise DNA. And I I know at one point, certainly on the go-to-market as well as engineering side, Dropbox really spent some time bringing in people with that (laughs) DNA. 
Um, what, what beyond the design piece? What does that really mean? And, and what do you see in engineers that are consumery versus enterprisey? Yeah, I think you're right about the DNA part. I break down the DNA part in three buckets. One is the go-to-market motion. So typically, when you think of an enterprise company, most of the time you're thinking of an outbound sales, a direct sales where there's a sales force going out and trying to convince people to buy your product. That's typically what you mean by enterprise versus consumer. Consumer is mostly, you imagine it's a sales of motion. The other dimension where I think these two differ is um, in terms of enterprise companies will typically have large accounts and the product roadmaps are typically more influenced by a small set of num accounts which are large. So if you have a $10 million contract with someone, you're more uh, incentivized to start building for a different customer. And that does cause a cultural change in EPD, which I'll talk about. The third one, I think, is understanding the product has to start meeting the needs of IT administrator, which is typically a lot more prevalent in um, large companies or security. And those needs become more complex as the company size grows. So those are three dimensions that change. In terms of engineering, I think what changes is um, if you're a consumer company, you have less opportunities to talk to a few customers and understand them deeply. Whereas an enterprise, I think something I drive a lot of value is it's valuable to talk to some your top 10 customers and understand what they're doing, understand what they're saying. They can give you a window into their own industry. So for example, if I meet someone from travel or retail industry, I can understand what's happening in the entire industry through them. When you're looking at a consumer company, you're probably doing research, but it's research through surveys and studies. You don't actually have one customer who you can use to say, okay, if this customer wants something, the 10 more customers behind them. So that's one. Uh, it And it changes. And I've seen that something which uh, different companies have where it changes where an enterprise company in that sense may have engineers and EPD, uh, engineering product and design, a lot more tuned to responding to a specific customer lot more reactive when a big customer says, I have an issue and they'll respond. Whereas in a consumer company, it becomes, it has to be quote unquote, a lot of large numbers. A lot of customers have to say, this is an issue before the, the company responds. The other change that happens is you have to have a different balance in providing solutions which are applicable at scale. So in a consumer company, you will want to like build something that can support a million users or build some solutions that can be sold to a large customer base. Whereas an enterprise company, you have to sometimes say, okay, we'll build something that is specific to a one customer or two customers, but because they're large accounts, it's still valuable. And, and that cultural change, I think, does change depending on whether you are an enterprise company or a consumer company. And it's a hard balance. I mean, I think we... we constantly try to find that balance even within Dropbox too. For sure. Akhil, the show is called Equivalent to Magic, and that's a nod to the idea that sufficiently advanced technology appears to the uninitiated as though it's magic. So we ask all of our guests this question, what technology in your career have you experienced that gave you that sense of magic? Oh, iPhone. <laughs> Hands down. Uh, uh, I think in my, uh, I have been in the technology industry in the last 15 years, uh, the true transformation that I have personally seen, because internet happened before me, uh, one is smartphones, mobile, uh, and the other is cloud. The combination of cloud and mobile has fundamentally changed how we all work, how we all interact with our physical world, uh, to a point where I don't know whether the world would know how to operate without either of those two things. The third transformation, I think, which is still happening is around AI. 
for what's worth, I think there is a lot more excitement than reality behind it. But I do think over time that will also transform a lot of things that we do in a way that will surprise us and we'll take it for granted. But to me, for me personally, the moment I saw iPhone, I knew the world has changed. It was a game-changing moment for the world. Akhil Gupta, thank you so much for spending the time with us. You've been indispensable for Dropbox. I enjoyed working with you a ton in my time there as well. And Same here. we look forward to our listeners getting to learn from your experiences. Thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a pleasure talking about Magic Pocket. Akhil Gupta is the outgoing general manager and VP of Enterprise at Dropbox. Equivalent to Magic is a podcast from General Catalyst, a VC firm investing in powerful, positive change that endures. To learn more about our investment approach and our portfolio, go to generalcatalyst.com. This show is produced in partnership with Postscript Audio. Please give us a rating wherever you get your shows and spread the word on social media. Stay with us as we go deep on the technical stories behind the world's most influential companies. I'm Quentin Clark. And I'm Steve Harrod. This is Equivalent to Magic.